Promise No Promises is a series of podcasts that has its origin in a research project initiated by Chus Martinez and supported by Instituto Sush, Art Stations Foundation Switzerland and Gracina Kulcic. The aim of this project is to raise attention to the role, language and importance of art education in positively influencing gender equality in art and culture. The first chapters depart from material recorded during a two-day symposium at the Basel Art Institute on the 10th and 11th of October 2018. There, a group of artists, curators and art historians, moderated by poet Quinn Latimer and Chus Martinez, debated on the questions that surround the question of gender. beginning that can proceed without questions? We don't think so. And yet, should the queries concern gender, the question of women and transgender issues? Should questions of masculinity also be asked? And are these general inquiries similar to those queries that follow us to work, within and without the arts? Are practical questions relevant? Those that redefine our thinking on the matter. Are old and new feminist concerns, arising from a spectrum of feminism, adequate to cover the entire spectrum of questions that we may need to ask? Are these queries an exercise we may desire, as well as a protocol we may embark on, to test the equality health of specific professional and personal situations? Do you think you can avoid having to deal with all these issues? Are you afraid of talking? Does the sound of your own voice give you pleasure or make you wince? How much money do you want to earn? Do you think your career will continue to rise in the near future? Are you afraid of your own desires? Is it better to remain mute or to disclose your ambition, even if many times you seem to not find the words to express it? I, I recently had a dream where I <laughs> I was somehow afraid of becoming a man because of, let's say, maybe um, social pressure or something that I was afraid of becoming a man, but also, I guess, subconsciously knowing that it's possible for women to become a man in a specific social environment. Yeah, called Burnesh in Albania. And Burnesha, they, are, they turn into men in the patriarchy times, they still exist, they still are alive, a few, I think 15 of them, and they turned into men just out of natural. They lost their um, cyclists, they changed their hormones, they, yeah, no breasts anymore, changed voice, just out of social pressure. Because the, let's say, the family head died, or the husband, or that was caring for the family, working or just providing food and then it, there was only there's only one possibility to turn into a man and to actually survive and keep the family up but somehow i think by having this and then sometimes sometimes when i meet women that are very cold <laughs> then i'm like hey you turned into a man i don't know why this is also really 
mean? Was it you who said that he was afraid that by being taught by all these different women artists and going to the school that he wouldn't be prepared for the art world when he got out because maybe he would only be making female art and thus he wouldn't be successful? And that's how an was he? Honest question, yeah. And I mean, that's like, I mean, it's quite interesting. You were scared to turn into a man, but he was scared to be a, a woman artist who was going to be marginalized, even though he was in a male body, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> it made this kind of hormonal transfer, I like it, so. But it's also interesting to assume that men are cold, no? <laughs> no, but it's interesting because I started thinking when I was a student that they are not monsters or they are not cold. That was the thing, that men are cold and women are warm. And where is this cliché coming from? And it's coming from the situation of, of more. If there is more of them into a room, um, the level of talking may diminish because uh, the frequency of what they need to say and the message can be shared collectively, almost as an image. So it transfers an image. And if you are only one and you think differently and you need to make your argument, you need to get warm to get the argument because you are in front of an image. And it's a question of media, actually. And it's a, it's, it's a question of, of um, how to get it there, no? I think, and I, and I think that that's also what you can call fear because you don't know how to handle a situation that's also sometimes only pure information, like uh, a structure work in one way, and then we may make the structure want to do performances that the structure cannot do. And then people are there to sustain the structure, and then you are there to question it. And then all of a sudden we are completely polarized into that cliche of people sustaining something that actually they don't actually even want to sustain, and us asking for love, like, um, like a typical female cliche, love me. You don't love me. <laughs> but you think fear is gendered? I, I think fear is very gendered. It's, um, I mean, maybe not the fear that one has in terms of their career, but I think even in that, like I'm, I'm scared of the things that I say no to. I'm scared of the things that I might not accomplish that I, I want to, the ones that the things that I'm embarking on. And I think a lot of those kinds of fears are 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 very gendered. They're very they're very interlaced with a kind of self-skepticism and self-doubt that I've had since basically since it was became very clear to me that like I'm not just like a a writer and an artist in the world. I'm a woman writer and an artist in the world, and that everything I do is comes through this kind of vessel, and that skepticism kind of goes, you know, it kind of plays hand in hand with that. And I don't think that my fears are just these kind of very holistic, you know, universal. But that's probably where the role of education comes. I think that um, fear is based on hope, or there is a decalage in between what you hope and what you think it may happen the consequences of things. And I think that, I think, I would be absolutely full of fear if, if somebody would just look to me and, and think I'm just like a small Spanish woman, one meter and a half, and that I am capable of nothing. But actually, um, part of that is true. I'm a Spanish woman, one meter and a half, uh, partly uh, absolutely capable of nothing. So it's if, if there is one part that I assume, I cannot fear it because it's there. Mm -hmm. So and it's it's also there with the absolutely assumption that mm, the the influence and the impact of many of the things we do is completely different as other communities. 
I, I assume mm -hmm. that. Yes. So and and that part of the fear went away. Mm -hmm. I also you may fear that they hire me at the university just because they needed a female to to run the program, for example, and that's absolutely nothing has to do with my capability of yeah. doing it. Do I care? No, because yeah. they give me a job. So thank you. So. Um, <laughs> So then you, you think, I don't need to fear that because I completely assume that this is one of the possible scenarios that they did not, you know, I got a job as a chief curator of a museum absolutely knowing that the persons that hire me never went to any exhibition I did or read a line that I wrote. I knew it. So it was very beautiful to discover it day by day by telling, like, by asking questions about my work and, and then seeing the embarrassment. It was like a comedy. But I, it, like, but I would fear it if I would assume that they knew all about me and they hired me on the basis of my work. They didn't. And I would say that in many, many cases, it's really not, it's not it. Um, so it's, and, and that's why I suppose that there is a difference in between female and, and male because universalism and education, they said that we are educated as equals, but it's not true. And since we are not equal in the same situation, things would happen differently. Mm -hmm. It would be very, very interesting to teach people to deal with the unevenness of the situation. I think I, um, I really like this, uh, um, when we talk about fear in the, relation with uh, a possible scenario, because I think this is what it is more than a fact, like the, because it's a, a feeling. And I think women are more, there is more possible um, dangerous scenarios, and it might not even be related to art, but in general um, that um, uh, represent, or that can provoke um, the feeling of fear in uh, women. I think that I can think of more scenarios that are dangerous for women yeah, of in course. I mean, there's like the mm -hmm. very famous quote, like, a man is afraid a woman will laugh at him. A woman is afraid that a man will kill her. I mean, it's like these, you know, these like dramas. And I, I think I was, you know, we're, we're in an art school and, and, we're, and we're in the sort of realm of art at the moment. And I remembered last year, I was, I was thinking about fear a lot and I was, I was watching television movies and at the, at the center of every book or film or TV series I was watching, the narrative hinged on a, like a, them f people finding a naked, dead, violated woman in the woods. No, this was literally like every series and like every book. And it was like this repeated fucking narrative. It was like the new Twin Peaks. It was like every genre. It's hilarious, but it's not hilarious. And I was talking to a friend about it. And it's like, a, it's like this cliche. And yet it's, we were talking about how in, in repeating this narrative over and over again, it's almost like a kind of structure of fear that they're trying to to put in you and you're supposed to metabolize, especially as like as writers and makers of stories, as artists who are constantly telling stories in the work, whatever medium we're working in. If this is one of the dominant narratives that we're being fed by like you know popular culture and art from like high to low, what does it mean to take in this story again and again through your whole life? And I was talking to a friend because we were in a a town in the middle of the desert, and it, like the houses we were staying in are in the middle of nowhere, and it kind of scared me if I was by myself there. And I asked her, her house was on the edge of the desert, do you ever get scared? And she goes, yes, she's like, but then I realized, you know, fear, we're meant to be scared, and it's quite boring. 
She's like, it's quite boring to be scared all the time. So I basically trained myself out of it. She's like, I don't think something will happen to me. Maybe it will, but it probably won't. And I, she's like, I don't want to basically like metabolize this like story of fear and this narrative that's being like shown on every surface and projected on everything that I see. That's not the story I want to carry within me. But I think it's like, I don't think it can be sort of disregarded or... Um, particularly when this is what we're doing. We're like, we're trying to create new narratives or new stories, which are always based on the old ones, basically. through these two days, I'm divided in a good way. Um, <laughs> because um, we are all claiming this kind of what I call economy of attention. No? This morning I was Robert Store, like giving the ground to Selena and Michelle, to the MoMA, and so on. And, and I can see that, that we are really attention demanding in, a, in an interesting way. And on the other hand, it's also true that you don't really want attention, but because you are asking for two economies, the economy that pay for the work and the production and the economy of attention, then we are running into some sort of double helix of complexity. But, but it, it runs through the system. Like It has been repeating the whole two days. Mm. Like, but, I think, but I think it's interesting because I think, again, I mean... Uh, you don't want to only talk about this in gendered terms, but like there's been this sort of undercurrent of this of this need for care that everybody here is suggesting, you know that that actually these kind of professional situations are are actually they're they're a dominant part in our life, and we want care from the people invite you you the analogy you just created was like if you invite someone into your home and you make them dinner and you tell them your story and you you open up and you make you create intimacy with them mm. and but the analogy was for you know a curator inviting you to a space to do an exhibition to expect the same kind of care and I think this is actually quite interesting. I don't. I mean, I think it's the economy of attention that you're talking about, but I think it's, I think it's, um, it's gendered in a way that like we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it as care. We don't want to talk about it as maternal. We don't want to talk about it in like female or womanly terms. Mm. But I think that actually there are probably many men who also um, and uh, other non-binaries <laughs> people who also want the same kind of care, but it's something that I think it's very embarrassing often for people to articulate or say, but it seems to be one of the, um, one of the things that we keep pushing against, that basically th there's this feeling that the, when people invite us, they're not inviting us for us. They're not inviting us for the work we do. They're inviting us for, for a name, a brand, a body, a certain image, and that's it. The rest can sort of go away. But like, actually what we want is a real interaction. We want a, a dinner and a narrative and a story and some sort of like intimacy. And I think that that's, that's quite interesting. But I mean, I'm no one has said that they just want to put their work in a space and be left alone. Well, but I, I would play the devil here. Because, um, yeah, nobody said that. But then it's totally legitimate to wish uh, to be a robot. Meaning, as a, as a curator, you cannot do this. You don't have the privilege of a separation. So if you are an artist, you could, you could even like, 
even hope that if you don't show your face, your name, and you only show your work, and it appears, it, nobody could know exactly who did it. So you could even hide your identity or even hope for a forgetfulness. Perhaps not now, but in 200 years, that it does not matter anymore, or it did matter and did stop mattering, because um, you know certain, certain ways of working are not identifiable anymore, or they stopped being identifiable because they were historically, they had an historic logic like uh, Eva Hesse, you needed to talk about skin, you need to talk about fragility, you need to talk about all these questions of organicity development, care, space, you needed to do it uh, against certain canons and certain ideas of what the, the institutions and the artwork were imposing into you. On the other hand, this may be not relevant anymore, um, and it's also relevant differently. But as a curator, it's impossible. There is nothing that separates your practice from your body. So I am not a curator, I'm a woman curator. So there's female curator, no way around it, because you need to have your presence, your voice, you are the one negotiating the space and so on. So by listening to all um, female artists talking about care and so on, one can also be reacting as many generations of people did and, and say like, but what do you impose that task upon me? Because it's clear that, for example, in a more male institutional um, standard way, they just try to make it run automatically, as you know, SBB, like the old watches of the station. They are synchronized. Some Swiss engineer did it with a trick, and all the stations, like clock, 12 at the same time in all the stations. And that's how, how they wish to go, like Rob Store. Like, uh, I invite you, you do the solo show, I have the conditions, here's the museum, here's my press officer, take it. Oh, Donna de Salvo, with the museum, I won't care. Let's talk about my, oh fuck. Like, then you have all this wave of this care and so on, so it's interesting how it repercutes into the system. And I think it's a good thing because we are arriving at a point that we are completely transparent about it, that we really want it. And I do believe that actually this is challenging things in a good way, because it's wanted through so many ways, and I think also that so many male also artists, uh, binary of course, uh, transgender queer movements always talk about that in so many ways the community was in the first place, not even the individual but the community, they, they really made a point from the beginning that the only way of supporting that was through appearing collectively. You were talking about like uh, like this whole allegory or this imagination of this Rob, this MoMA Rob, inviting somebody and we all want his love and his care and stuff like this. Um, <laughs> but I kind of wanted to add that I could totally do a show without any engagement of a curator. I'm absolutely capable of doing this, <laughs> but I, I'm not really interested in it or this is not why I decided to do what I do. But it wouldn't be a problem. I could also just not care. No, I think it's totally um, understandable. But then still, I hope you would totally insist and then the, like, that at least the conditions are super transparent and then that robotic exchange of services would be clear and satisfactory to both. Yeah. Because otherwise it makes no sense. No, because I think, of course, we are just making an exaggeration out of it, which I think is necessary because at the end of the day, I would not do it without love, I think. It's, it's, uh, it's fundamental. 
like maybe not not just love maybe also like antagonism or um oh no that would be really annoying <laughs> or this is what i thought was quite amazing it's much more time consuming i think love saves more time but i thought it was quite great that this symposium is about like women in the arts and instead of talking about being a female artist when i was on stage before we had like quite an antagonistic discussion about art which i think is the best example basically instead of like victimizing it's important i never came to my mind that actually i wanted uh, love from from any institution i work with but it may be true that that, that was like and i think it's so interesting and and so on, that actually that's what it carries, uh, the bond and the solidarity is that, but, but also among male, and the institution is also in the male side, because it's an imperial structure. It comes from power, it comes from the king, then it comes from the ministers, so it has a, it has a structure that, that develops in a more gender anonymous way, independently if you have a woman there or a man. It's how the structure works, and, and then uh, all these questions of feelings uh, into a structure of post-finance would be like really strange, like give me love, no, I think. Uh, so it's like, you know, and, and, and I think that this is uh, fundamental because, because that's actually how things get changed by getting softer, getting osmotic, and, and, and that's probably the big transformation in institutional critic terms, it's not a dialectical one. It's not about the white cube being only inside and then outside. It's not only about objects and performance. It's not about male and female. It's not about that. It's about this kind of strange transfer and the ridiculousness of, of trying to ask that the monument of Napoleon cries out of a stone on top of the, of the horse. And I think that this is completely legitimate to want it to cry, like that there is an impressive transfer into all these things that is happening in, in a way. And I think that this is kind of becoming clear to me through these two days, that, that uh, there is demands that, that instead of needing to be diminished, they need to be much bigger. They need to be even more like into the absurdity so that love should be actually, and that, that there is this anecdote how I met Caroline Christoph. Like she entered into an exhibition of, of mine and then she st started screaming that well, we need this a biennial dealing with love. And then I ran into the other direction of the building. And then I was seated together in a dinner and then I, here you are. <laughs> That's the one that ran away from me when I said that I want a biennial dedicated to love. And then all of a sudden it, like, it, it was completely hysterical and I think she was entirely right. And, um, and that's exactly the, you know, the paradox of, of the systems of we have been talking about, no? I don't know. I think that there's like, you know, I think that this, this dialectic of soft and hard is kind of interesting. But I, I was also, having fun with I, it. I also <laughs> think like the dialectic goes the other way. There's a certain um, comfort in like in a, a certain kind of female severity or a feminist severity that I like that I counter against this kind of male fragility. Like if we're just gonna talk in these sort of binaries, I think they kind of, they kind of go both ways. And I think that 
to go against, I think there was a question at the end of the day yesterday, and it was, it was questioning kind of this sort of male, female, these binaries that we've been setting up all day, this sort of essentialism, and like where was the sort of gender fluidity and what we're all talking about. And I think we both agreed that, you know, no matter how fluid we feel interior, our exterior is greeted as women. Everything we do in a social society sense, we're taken as women, no matter how fluid we might feel yeah. inside our bodies. But and also we don't need to be constant. What I was, I mean, exactly. I, I'm defending exactly. my biennial of love. No, but this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying is I'm saying that we don't, I'm saying that, but there is a moment where that internal fluidity can be made external and made it, maybe it can be made external in, in the work we do and the relationship, the relations we have with people, the people we work with, the people we collaborate with, you know, and this is, a, this is where these kind of dialectics of like no, no, soft, no, no. hard, fragile, not sort of come into play. But I'm going into extremes. What I meant is that you could actually, um, I'm, I'm really interested in behavior, so I, I do think that we cannot escape cliches or even um, things that are important because they develop historically. They just not, they are not invented and they are based on relations and connections and functions that we have. Functions that we have that other people don't have. And these functions also determine the perception of what we do and the value. So important would be actually to to just act in these cliches and act on them a lot, meaning in and out, that you can be hard and soft, like mm -hmm. in a day. Mm -hmm. You don't need even to do it, you know, um, I'm soft because I'm warm because I'm a woman and I am, and then but I'm cold as well. So, you know, in the afternoon I'm very cold and I'm pleading for the biennial of love, but then I'm hating it five minutes later because who the fuck wants a biennial of love if there is no cookies in it? So it's like all these kind of questions, all these paradoxes, they need to be incorporated. I think that is, I think I'm learning to embrace that more and more. Inconsistency. I think if corporative uh, capital male patriarchalism is really pleading for consistency because otherwise you cannot plan and the money and the budgets are, are based in the possibility of planning and going ahead so that we can assure two things, progress and innovation. One way of fucking it up is producing unevenness and that's exactly why art and performing all these cliches and behavior is or may be so important because you just disrupt this this road of, um, of expectations. Mm -hmm. So in a very technical way, by any of love. Yes. <laughs> yes. I feel um, like you want to say something, what? No, no, yeah, just agreement. I like the, to disrupt. I mean, the, I think I, I like it uh, because it's, a, it's almost a, a visual um, term when you talk about uh, unevenness, I mean, even if it's the heartbeat, which is uh, even in a sense that it's a, um, it's a, uh, on a, uh, uh, how, how do you say? I mean, it it's people who are living, they have a, uh, how do you say? Constant heartbeat, but still actually the peaks, it's like going down and high. And I think it, that could also be in your biennial of love. <laughs> and it is really at this really sharp peaks that which are both up and down. And I like, uh, when I think about uh, unevenness, I mean, this is uneven, but it's even, but it's constant in the same time. It's surviving, I don't know. I think it's uh, just an image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
had a different idea, but after this last panel, I thought I would read a, a short excerpt from an essay from my last book that's on the idea of influence, or specifically mother influence, female influence, at the risk of sounding much too es essentialist once again, but I think that's going to be my role here for these days. So, my mother, my other, or some sort of influence. And it begins with a Sophie Call quote. She says, I don't think my mother would have chosen to return as a stuffed giraffe in the studio of her daughter, but she is dead. Days push off into nights. Your mother clones every object, every subject. Every sentence leads to her, the books. So, there was a season I spent, but there is always some season spent, going through my mother's books. I flipped through them, finding the pages she had turned down, small paper triangles dramatizing quietly some page, breaking its frame roughly, profanely, and marking its utility, some use, some ruin. Then I read those pages, searching for what might have struck her, some slice of words, attendant meaning. Her mind is what marked and shocked me, so I searched for what shocked it. Here's a page I marked that I still remember, a lean apocalyptic poem by Ingeborg Bachmann. Wherever we turn in the storm of roses, the night is lit up by thorns, and the thunder of leaves, once so quiet within the bushes, rumbling at our heels. It was something to do. I suppose I had been doing it my whole life reading the books my mom, mother read, watching the films she watched, trying on the politics she wore, sometimes embodied, feeling her sensibilities cross my face, what that felt like, trying on her intelligence, her seriousness, her ambition, her wit, anger, grief, mania, ardor. It was a look. And while moving through those looks, those books, that season, and so many before and since, I began recognizing in the pages of these critical and literary women a gravity that my mother had herself gleaned and adopted, tried and taken on. A sensibility at once so specific and elusive that I could nearly see it, almost catch it, echoing through the pages as I turned them over. A look with a lineage not just familial or genetic, something else. My mother's critical literary influence at first was just a style I recognized, a certain look of the mind and the body and what attended and clothed and awakened and received it. Other minds, other bodies. Who were they? Bachman, of course, but also Akhmatova, Hannah Arendt, Elizabeth Bishop, Anita Bruckner, Marguerite de Ra, Valley Export, June Jordan, Yulia Kristeva, Doris Lessing, Audre Lorde, Tina Madadi, Sontag, Alice Walker, Krista Wolf, Virginia Woolf, etc. I hadn't yet read all their books or looked at their work, but I saw them everywhere in the various apartments and houses in California where we lived, the books more consistent than the thin stucco walls and uneven bookcases that held them. I studied the photographs on the backs of these volumes, black and white portraits that assume significance, the critical style of their minds made visible by their various serious looks, button-down shirts or dashikis, impressive hair, the somber, glamorous set of the face. Later, my mother suddenly gone, a phone call, and she was done. Still her influence, that mother influence, answered by the daughter who would receive it, 
moved through me via the works of other mothers, other daughters. I started noticing everywhere that relationship. Mothers, so many dark bodies, staining presences, suddenly appeared in the books I read, haunting or humming through them, central or spectral. Just as suddenly, perhaps not so suddenly, I was reading those women writers and artists whom I favored less as a student and more as a daughter, taking their critical work and creative lives and struggles as a nearly genetic model for my own. My inheritance, a kind of heritage. Without my mother, I had become everyone's discriminating daughter. Strange now to think how in this I'd be mimicking my own mother, using her own decisive self-orphaning as a kind of model. See, disowning her own mother, she had become the studious daughter of an exemplary family of Western intellectual women, the books, etc. O mother, O family, O history, O form, O style, O subject, O object, O etc. Instructively, I often found this mother influence in works of art that stood to the side, existing as hybrids in the literary or critical margins. Such works employed diaristic elements or took the form of letters, experimental essays, performances, abject portraits of the self or other. That women, the marginalized par excellence, made most of these works, exploiting the idea of marginalia or challenging it with their major works on minor subjects, was not lost on me, as it hadn't been lost on my own mother or most critical women, artist or writer or philosopher or mystic or organizer, my women of letters. There was Chantal Ackerman's first film, News from Home, from 1977, the year before I was born, composed of missives from the filmmaker's mother and shots of New York City, where Ackerman had just moved. When I saw the film for the first time, not so long after my mother died, in the Stadtkino in Basel in 2010, a screening organized by artist and writer Moira Davy, editor of the anthology Mother Reader. The anxious letters by Ackerman's mother in Belgium read over dusky tracking shots of 1970s Manhattan streets reminded me of the knife-wet knife letters my own mother sent me from California when I first went to college in New York in the late 90s. Some of the sentences were as exact as the knife, as glittery in their banal familiarity. Quote, I would love to come visit you, but I would have to win the lottery first. Quote, tell me how you are. Quote, your loving mother. Quote, do you need money? I don't have much. Quote, your father misses you, etc. Though the anxiety of Ackerman's mother was exacerbated by the family context and history, mother and grandmother had been in the camps, the latter murdered there. Still, the letters cut into me. I read my mother's own voice into them, into those English subtitles streaking the screen. It was just a projection, another one, my own, in that small Basel theater, but it felt as real as what? As a knife. That metaphor again, what is most like a knife, the voice of one's mother gleaming. Later, there would be the related film, also about letters and mothers and daughters, titled Letters Home. This one based on the missives that Sylvia Plath wrote to her own mother. Ackerman's film is an adaptation of Roy's Goldenberg's 1980 play of the same name and starred mother and daughter actresses Delphine and Corelli Seyrig. The film screened in 2014 at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London, 
just a year before Ackerman took her own life, distraught at the recent death of her mother, distraught perhaps with life and work and drinking too much. One of the many obituaries I read in shock on my phone said, quote, the marginal position she sometimes occupied in the film world had much to do with her eclectic practice, which made it hard to assign her a neat auteur identity. Ackerman was a planet, her work fiercely gravitational. It was hard to imagine her contained within the small margins of that sentence. Her last film, No Home Movie, from 2015, was a video portrait of her dying mother. My friend Annette watched it at its premiere at the Locarno Film Festival. She told me it was beautiful and brilliant and moving, though the reaction from the audience was mixed. Women's lives, particularly when detached from those of men, though, are rarely watched with anything other than minor interest. That each of these works, made over the course of a lifetime, has home in the title, a home that is either at a distance or negated, is pointed, as is the writing on Ackerman's gravestone. Moira Davey recently sent me a photo of it in an email. It reads, in English, translation, child of an escapee of the Shoah. Perhaps when one is a child of a survivor, home is only to be found in them, the distance from them, even in death. Of Ackerman's earlier film based on Goldenberg's play, the ICA in London noted astutely that it is an object passed from a poet to her mother, from her mother to a woman playwright, then to a woman theater director, and finally to a woman filmmaker. This is a remarkable heritage, an object passed from hand to hand, a form of exchange between generations of mothers and daughters. Close quote. Yet strange that they call this project, book, then play, then film, an object, something heavy of material, something silent. I think of this project rather as a letter, a series of them, fleet and full of voices, fleeing. But what were those actual letters by Plath like, the ones her mother published after she died, young, gushing, devastating, conscious and wary of the mother influence, its gift and burden, Quote, you are the most wonderful mommy that a girl ever had, and I only hope I can continue to lay more laurels at your feet, she wrote. Warren and I both love you and admire you more than anything in the world for all you have done for us, for it is you who have given us the heredity and the incentive to be mentally ambitious. To be mentally ambitious, that kind of mothering and heritage comes in various forms. So who else did I read to not replace my mother to, but to find her again, tracing her influence and my own doubled? There was Sontag and Joan Didion, our Western women of letters, critics from California who made their way east to New York to achieve their ambition, but whose writing branched out from there. Didion stretching back to the West Coast, Sontag's moving across the Atlantic to Central and Eastern Europe, where so many of the minds she loved and limbed were shaped and destroyed. There was Anne Carson, whose entire critical, poetic, classical body of work is shadowed by the spectral figure of her skeptical mother on the moor to the north, Canada. In her seminal poem, The Glass Essay, from 1995, Carson writes caustically, I can tell by the way my mother chews her toast whether she had a good night and is about to say a happy thing or not. And in her discursive study, Decreation, apart on the work of Simone Weil, she notes, 
To my mother, love of my life, I describe what I had for brunch. Well, food and meals, whom we take with them with, who we cook them for, can also be kind of style, a kind of criticism, a kind of daughterhood also. Why did you actually choose only women to be on stage? Wouldn't be like um, more women than men would have been an option too? Yeah, but then I didn't. <laughs> it just came natural to me. I really wanted to be to do it for once. I never did it before that way, and I think that it was. So what do you think? I don't know. I'm very. I'm quite happy. I think it's a good thing. I think I never think of, of things as a model or as an example or anything. This is not iconic. It's not that you should do it. It's not that it, you know. I'm not trying to implement any anything by it. I just wanted to do it. I thought that because we have this, I think I have this concern about how to talk about these issues, and I would love to have a conversation among us first before moving forward. And I thought I have this. But intuition. you allow the audience to be mixed still, in that sense. It was an open call. Yes, I don't. I think I, I love them also equally. <laughs> Students of both sexes and also those that are non-binary are absolutely loved. But it's it was a question of where to start and why not start in that way. But it kind of came naturally by putting names and and I have no idea exactly why. So and and yeah, every I can imagine when you start researching, it's also just about where you put your focus. So it's absolutely not true if somebody says, oh, there was no female artist like, fitting in this and that show, for instance. So now I understand what you, what you say, because it's maybe when you think about this topic, it's just the focus of research that only women can come into your mind. No, some male also came to my mind, and I know that there is so many uh, male artists very preoccupied by these questions, but somehow it's a question of getting ready. I don't know if I'm ready even myself to talk about these issues. We are not doing that because we are ready. We are doing that, or I am doing that, because I really want to learn how to do it. I'm very concerned about education. I'm very concerned about we are in classrooms which are mixed, and we want to give not we, we need to give like equal opportunities, but also to make sure that all those that are there to be artists made it, that we secure that, that we can follow up, that we can care, that we can do it. So how to learn where are the flows? And, and I think conversations like that may help, but I don't know. Um, I just wanted to add something on uh, your term ready. Because I read uh, recently, I think, or maybe I guess you, even it was maybe in a uh, cheesy or quite a popular source, which said um, you shouldn't wait to be ready to fall in love. So maybe we don't need to wait to be ready. We are already. Yeah, but I don't think we are ready. I think <laughs> I think we shouldn't. We shouldn't wait. For I think yeah, I think we shouldn't wait, and I think we are. I mean, or I think it shouldn't. Uh, we don't have to wait to be ready or you know what i mean yes but i think it's a, but it's a very they are born very ready it's a very good questions i think you want to study you want to implement you want to to see if there are things that you can do that may help in a way or that they may make a better context 
for practitioners of um, of every kind to find the opportunities and so on and so forth. But it's so imposing uh, the matter where to start, who to invite. Should you start by just having really like historical positions, though those that are historically recognized. Um, that they have been going through a certain period. And then I said, no, I, I really wanted, and it was intuition, I wanted to be with, with quite young people, and I wanted to be, and then the list came, and it was only female, and everyone was pointing that, do you see that it's all female? I said, yeah, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. And I think it's okay, so because then there is other stages and other opportunities, and they get mixed, and it's an organic development, no? And uh, well, and I think for me it has been very, very important these, these two days for many reasons. I learned a lot and I really thank you with all my love for being here. Participants were Stefanie Hessler, Natasha Sartre, Anna Weinberger, Alexandra Navratil, Julieta Aranda, Elise Lammer, Emily Ding, Laura Miriam Leonardi, Selina Grüter and Michelle Graf, Camille Alenia, Axel Stiefel, Katharina Brandl, Laga Kondo, Rafaela Naldi Rosano and Mareike Dittmar. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, www.institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Institut Tussouche is part of a new museum initiative open to the public from January 2nd, 2019. More information can be found at www.museumsouche.ch. Editing and sound design, Elena Ziza. Research assistant, Alice Wilke. Recordings, Konrad Siegel. Choir by Inka Teha and Emilia Alvarez. Produced by Institut Kunst Basel and Institut Tussouche, Art Stations Foundation Switzerland 2018.